Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we'll be talking about Ray Bradbury's book, Dandelion Wine. It's not his most famous novel. As you know, Fahrenheit 451 is his most famous novel. In some sense, Fahrenheit 451 tells us how we might lose the beautiful and good things that we're in possession of. But Dandelion Wine shows us the beautiful and good things that we do have and that are worthy of protecting. This is a book that I kind of fell in love with and didn't expect to be reading and especially reading this closely. Uh, but nevertheless, I've written a lot about it, and so I'd like to share it with you. I think if you uh, haven't read it, you should. But even if you haven't read it, you might enjoy this insofar as the extra detail in the commentary maybe brings out some of the plot details. Um, uh, but anyway, let's let's talk about the first 10 chapters of Dandelion 1. So this commentary is called Discoveries and Revelations um, in Ray Bradbury's Dandelion 1. Um, and you'll find out why the title is that later on. Now, we could say this to start with, an initial observation about the book before we jump into it. The book is broken up into chapters, but they are neither titled nor are they numbered. Why? Perhaps it is meant to indicate the way a lengthy childhood summer can feel when we can ask, uh, what day of the week is it? And the answer to the question doesn't really matter. And so too, then, maybe it doesn't really matter how far into the summer we are. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is as the book goes in. At least this might be some kind of structural hint that Bradbury gives to us. So if we turn to chapter one, we see that summer begins. And the main character, this young boy named Douglas Spaulding, feels as if the summer is for him. Indeed, at the close of this brief chapter, he exerts what appears to be a godlike control over the world, pretending that he can command not only his family members to be prepared for summer, to begin their summer duties of making pancakes and things like that, but he can command everybody in town. The summer is for him and he is in control. However, when we turn to chapter two, however much Douglas felt like the world could be commanded in the first chapter, he experiences a strange reversal in this chapter. It is striking how he interprets accidental moments, like running through a spider web, as prophecies or signs of what is to come. We see very often in this book, Bradbury show us how unscientific a child is in their orientation towards the world. Um, it's very striking. Um, but as he runs through this spider web that he sees as a prophecy, uh, quote, he knew that this day was going to be different, end quote. In other words, the world does not come to sight for Douglas as cold scientific objects, but rather as subjects or as signs of some sort of cosmic will that pays attention to him. As an aside, well, maybe I'll put it this way. As an aside, you can almost see how pagan religion emerges fairly easily out of this childlike disposition to interpret all natural forces as having some kind of will or fruitful meaning for us to discover that these objects, they want something in the same way that we want something. Setting that aside, um, now, rather than being able to command the entire world, as Douglas seemed to be able to in the first chapter, he senses that he has to quietly submit to a thing, and it has a capital T in the book, that is highly attentive to his and his brother's and father's every word and action. 
as he wrestles with his brother, a boy who seems much more scientifically or mathematically oriented, he's suddenly struck with the realization, I'm alive. Now, of course, we all know that we're alive, but Bradbury seems to want to tell us that we might not understand or feel the full gravity of what that means. It's easy to say, but it's more somehow difficult to understand. Somehow the speech doesn't fully articulate or encapsulate what it means to be alive um, in Bradbury's view, or at least in his character's view. The chapter opened with references to the different human senses. Bradbury seems to be indicating that there are important kinds of knowledge that we cannot arrive at by thinking alone, but that somehow paying attention to the way that things, both the world and ourselves, feel. Now, uh, whether or not this is true is another question, but this seems to be where the argument of the book is heading, and the book induces a special kind of joy in the reader, or at least in me. So somehow, in order to take Bradbury maximally seriously, it seems that one must pay close attention to how the book makes one feel. Now, turning to the third chapter, Illumination is cast on the title of the book. Douglas's grandfather produces dandelion wine. In, her, in his words, dandelions are, quote, a common flower, a weed that no one sees, yes, but for us, a noble thing, the dandelion, end quote. Now, most people see dandelions as an all-too-common nuisance. Douglas's grandfather goes as far as to call them noble. He sees within these plants a possibility that most others cannot see. I, for one, did not know that dandelions could be a key ingredient in wine. Um, Douglas reminds us again of the key insight that has struck him in the previous chapter. He is alive. This knowledge came to him in what he interpreted as a supernatural source, the thing. But somehow, this quasi-divine insight can be bottled in the form of dandelion wine. In this way, then, the insight is mixed together with nature. Or maybe a better way to put it is that the book seems to divinize nature. Now, an example of the mixture of nature and spirit or the divine is the description the book gives of rainwater. Quote, it softened the lip and the throat and the heart if drunk. End quote. Rainwater, by this account, is constituted in such a way as to affect both the body and the heart. Heart is presumably a metaphor for soul or spirit. The physical effect seems easily understandable, but what about the spiritual? Do we receive this effect because of our awareness that we are in harmony with nature, subsisting only off of its bounty without any cultivation or human modification? That we somehow sense that this more natural way of living, that is drinking rainwater, is what we are supposed to be doing and rainwater offers a small glimpse into the natural world prior to the emergence of modernity, um, or too much technology even in the ancient world? At any rate, we can say this. The title of the book is featured prominently for the first time, so it seems like an especially fruitful moment for us to learn something about Bradbury's intention. The words dandelion wine are, quote, summer on the tongue. The liquid is summer in a glass. Even Grandma sought to seek a sip, which, which would transport her, if just momentarily, into another time with, quote, 
a last touch of a calendar long departed. One purpose of the book, then, would appear to be standing in as a bottle of dandelion wine for the reader. The first three chapters strike me as extraordinary in their capacity to arouse such feelings in the heart of the reader. But one wonders, how long can the feeling be sustained over the course of the book? And can one take too many sips? Turning to chapter four, Bradbury introduces a classic juxtaposition that we were able to anticipate in the thoughts on rainwater above, civilization versus nature, or as our narrator puts it, quote, the ways of man and the ways of the natural world. A child in the summer is able to somehow catch a glimpse of and even partially, sorry, partially participate in a world that sits outside of the ways of man. At least they hope or feel that they can. In this chapter, Bradbury also refers us back to the ship of state, uh, a, a classic metaphor. Quote, the town was, after all, only a large ship filled with constantly moving survivors, bailing out grass, chipping away the rust, end quote. Human society is presented as something that floats on water, which seems to stand in for nature. And casting the image this way suggests that we are vulnerable to nature. Nature is then presented as double-sided, as neither friend nor foe, but as beautiful and as dangerous. Nature is also presented as something that will last long after humans disappear from the planet. Our houses will be buried in a green tide of grass when, quote, the last man has ceased. This account seems to demote human accomplishment. All of our works will be lost in the sands of time, and yet, mysteriously, we find ourselves alive and important. After all, we must be important if a thing watches out for us, and captivated by our projects. Bradbury intensifies the reader's desire to understand what being alive means. For while Douglas came to the, to the realization that he is alive, it occurs to him at the end of the chapter that others are more alive than he is. We are led to wonder as well, what is most likely to make us feel the feeling of living most of all? What is it that makes us feel most alive? We turn to chapter five. After Bradbury forcefully brings to our attention the idea of nature in the previous chapter, he immediately pivots to show us the ways of men in this chapter, as it begins with Douglas finding himself drawn toward tennis shoes in the store window. In this way, does Bradbury intend to expand our idea of what nature is? He briefly intimated the difference between the ways of man and the ways of the natural world before. But could it be right to say that some of the ways of man, or maybe putting it a different way, that a human could have some kind of natural longing for shoes, either because they provide protection from nature or because they assist us in becoming cooler or more beautiful than others? In other words, could the question at stake be something like this? Is there a way in which some conventions of humans flow out of more natural desires than others? Strikingly, the shoes are even described as, quote, quiet as summer, rain falling on the walks, end quote. In other words, the narrator presents the shoes as tied to nature, or perhaps Douglas wants to see them that way. For example, he thinks, 
whatever I want is good by nature. And that's what makes it naturally good. It's just because I want it. Which is to say he could be mistaken. Maybe he has not interpreted his desires correctly. Um, we should add this. The words felt and feel show up in the chapter over a dozen times. And most of these chapters are just three to four pages. It is of note that the word feel shows up so much in a chapter where Douglas is required to offer, quote, reasons, end quote, for why his father should buy shoes for him. Rather than supplying his father with reasons, rather than trying to convince him with speech, Douglas gathers the money that he has, though he is a dollar short of buying the shoes, and tries to make the shoe store owner feel the excitement that possesses Douglas. He gives a great, beautiful statement about why these shoes are so good for him. Now, what is the status or role of reason in the world of the book, where the feelings produced seem to be the core of what guides people's lives? In other words, reason appears here as an instrument or tool of our feelings, used to help modify the way that we feel, or used to modify the way that others feel in order to make them be more or less more to our advantage, that they feel in a way that they want to help us or assist us or something along those lines. Um, something else interesting that this chapter features um, is the way that advertising is used in the chapter. It's, it's sort of hard to pin down what Bradbury thinks about it. Now, Douglas thinks to himself that the makers of the shoes must have watched, or sorry, this is a quote, watched a lot of winds blow the trees and a lot of rivers going down to the lakes, end quote. He imagines highly beneficent shoemakers who are like nature-viewing magicians as they're able to store the power of nature within their products. This is, of course, what every shoemaker would want you to believe. Douglas repeats the, and this is the brand of the shoes, Paralite. Paralite shoe advertisement in his head meaning that he has internalized or memorized the words that are designed to extract a profit from people who are precisely like him. So what is Bradbury doing? The first option I see is this. Bradbury is depicting, to some extent, a certain kind of child's vision of a utopia in which all companies do actually care deeply about their products and also about their customers. And this is a world in which each person finds great personal satisfaction in their jobs. For instance, we see the shoe store owner treats the shoes he sells as if they're animals, as if they're beautiful, nice animals, and how carefully he treats them. That is, Douglas hopes for a harmonious world that is free of tragic conflict, where no matter where you end up within the division of labor, you'll find your own happiness and ability to bring joy to others. A second possibility for how to understand the advertisement stuff uh, in this passage is to say this. Bradbury is showing how effective advertisers are at manipulating children into thinking that they are the child's friends. Um, that certainly could be the case. I'm inclined towards not the second more cynical possibility, um, but rather towards the first in as much as Bradbury seems to really dig into what a childlike thinking presupposes or assumes to be true and hopes for. Taking a shot at advertisers might be low-hanging fruit that any writer could do, 
whereas there might be very few writers who are able to bring to light the vision and psychology of a child. So uh, it seems to me option one makes more sense. And so ends chapter five. Now, as we turn to chapter six, at the outset of the chapter, Douglas shows a willingness to learn from his younger brother, Tom, by imitating Tom's statistical approach to life. Douglas wants to write up notes on things that he and his family do every summer. Quote, this will be called ceremonies and rites, and on things that are new or that happen for the first time. And this is the title of uh, my commentary, Discoveries and Revelations. Doug seeks to impose order on his experience of the world. Indeed, he wishes to impose more order than Bradbury does on his own book, by choosing not to provide chapter numbers or titles. But by showing us his character imposing order on his written text, Bradbury may be inviting us to consider if his own text is more quietly or implicitly well-ordered than it first appears. In this way, Bradbury shows, shows his respect for the reader. By not holding his hand, he asks us to investigate on our own whether or not the text has its own plan or if it is randomly organized memories. There's something to the organized memories argument, but as I think we've seen themes show up and sort of run together and that continue throughout the book. I think, I think it must be the former case that there is an order to the book and that Bradbury does intend to teach us something important. Douglas shows his respect for the past and for tradition by giving a written account of what came before. Uh, counting up the things that happen all the time. On the other hand, he also keeps his eyes open to new insights, like the possibility that, quote, grandpa or dad don't know everything about the world, end quote. This is, I think, a revelational moment for a child. The child will probably discover this truth later in a well-ordered family and earlier in a badly ordered family. I remember a time when my mother was driving me to a soccer tournament in the mountains um, and I was a boy and it was dark and rainy and she asked me to keep talking to her to help her stay awake. And I didn't think anything of it. In my head at the time, I took it for granted that she would easily get us to where we needed to go and that the alleged need for my assistance was just a nice gesture to make me feel important. Thinking back now, after having been desperately tired while driving at night um, on some kind of road trip, I can see that my mother probably found herself in a truly difficult situation, but her composure and attitude concealed from me the difficulty, which is to say in that moment, I did not yet know that adults uh, made mistakes. This is not something that was yet aware or that I was aware of, um, generally speaking. Yeah, you can really feel that difference once you start to see adults making mistakes, then you start to look for it all the time. And then they start to look like the parents who are like on the Peanuts, you know, uh, cartoons or something like that, who just like womp, 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 and they don't make sense anymore. Um, But however that may be, the upshot of the realization of parental imperfection implies the possibility that the traditions that we have received were created by imperfect human beings, or at the very least transmitted to us by imperfect human beings. This requires us then to look for our own discoveries or revelations and to compare them to the traditions that we have received. At the same time, though, it seems that we owe it to our traditions to ask, what problems were they trying to solve? Or what good thing were they trying to accomplish? 
to try and sympathy, sympathetically understand a tradition as it understands itself is the condition of a reasonable acceptance, rejection, or modification of a tradition. Douglas goes out of his way to insist that it is, quote, no crime that grandpa and dad don't know everything. Douglas, who reiterates his insight about knowing that he is alive again in this chapter, realizes that the world is much more complicated than he thought it was. Its complexity ought to humble us when we feel certain about things. At the very least, this is certainly the attitude that Bradbury counsels us to have. He very lightly introduces this theme here, but makes it increasingly apparent in subsequent chapters. Doug proposes an argument that seems juvenile on one hand, but would have staggering consequences if true. He claims that the source of conflict between children and adults is that they, quote, belong to different races. Which is to say, Doug claims that human thought is conditioned by race. In this case, the races in his mind being child and adult. To think in Doug's terms, then, one race grows into being another race. So there is something nonsensical about his claim, about the key difference if one grows into the other. But the more serious idea that might underlie his claim is that there be certain times of life in which we have access to a certain thought or perspective that is lost based on the passage of time, an acquisition of new experience. In other words, there would be an unbridgeable gap between children and adults in certain moments. In a way, there is a difficulty, but on the other hand, the difficulty can't be unbridgeable insofar as children do come to understand the adult world, so to speak, and hopefully adults come to understand the world that the children live in themselves. And indeed, it may be the case that Bradbury's book is designed to help bridge the gap between children and adults, as we see adult, sorry, children that are growing into adults. Um, but at any rate, we can say that Doug is concerned with a potential communication gap between children and adults. And it would seem that any adult that is unable to really remember or feel their childhood experience while speaking to a child will be less capable of entering into a child's mental world, so to speak. Tom, though, Doug's brother, does not wish to be completely overshadowed by Douglas's move into his own statistical territory. He offers a pseudoscientific account of why night comes into being. He suggests that the shadows that exist under trees during the day eventually find their way out and cause nighttime. Quote, if only we could find a way to keep those five billion shadows under their trees, end quote. <laughs> I mean, uh, you could say his theory is absurd, but we should ask, why would Tom even propose it? Perhaps trees stand in for human beings, for us, like in our own experience, as a kind of preeminent or essential symbol of the natural world in our minds. They're also generally static or stationary in terms of movement, you know, besides the wind and a little bit of movement towards the sun, I suppose. So their shadows would be relatively stable in our own common sense experience. Um, so perhaps that is why Tom zeroes in on them. But why not mountains, bushes, etc.? I'm not quite sure. His thinking seems a little bit sloppy, but his brother Douglas shows his generosity as a brother 
by adding Tom's proposal about the causes of night into his notebook. And that's how the chapter ends. We turn to chapter 7. If we viewed this chapter from the perspective of Douglas's notebooks, we would have to classify it under ceremonies and rites rather than discoveries and revelations. Here we receive a beautiful depiction of a small town community that really shares a way of life in a manner that I think very few American towns are capable of today. We see multiple generations of one family sitting on a porch who are joined by neighbors and friends. The narrator tells us that it, quote, wasn't important what any of the adults talked about, end quote, which seems like an indication that continual, excuse me, warm conversations are ultimately more important than profound intellectual conversations. I say this in a certain sense, even though it tends to cut against the grain of how I generally look at things, but I can see why this makes some sense. Now, what is at stake in this claim? The claim that warm conversations are ultimately more important than profound intellectual conversations. I hesitate to say this, or I propose the following is a mere hypothesis, since I think that more evidence is required, but that Bradbury is proposing that how we act or treat people is more important than what, it, than what it is that we know. In other words, moral virtue is of a higher rank than intellectual virtue by this account. To put this a different way, deeds or actions are more important at bottom than what we say or think. But I hesitate to say this because Bradbury also places a lot of emphasis in many places in the book on at least trying to understand the universe or everything in it to the extent that we can. But his awareness of how little we might be able to understand in a strict sense might be part of what motivates him to emphasize action over thought. And so ends chapter 7, a beautiful chapter. In chapters 8 and 9, I'm going to sort of gather them together. These chapters seem to form a pair, as they both tell us with much brevity, these are some of the shortest chapters in the book, about a page and a half each, about a man named Leo Aufman, the town jeweler, who is inspired by Douglas and his grandfather to try and build a, quote, happiness machine. At the outset of chapter 8, there are men smoking cigars, and their smoke is described as, quote, clouds of annihilation, end quote. That's not true. Well, I like cigars, but so maybe maybe I'm, I have been offended by this. Um, but at any rate... <laughs> It is Aufman's disgust with these men who are smoking cigars that prompts the inspirational conversation. I am a bit baffled at what Bradbury is getting at with this whole cigar thing, but to take a stab at it, could it be this? Is he saying that cigars represent a sort of misplaced attempt to gain happiness in the wrong kind of way? I'm not sure. However that may be, it seems that we ought to ask this. What would it mean for a machine to be able to transmit happiness to us? If we wanted to give a sort of pseudo-Aristotelian account of happiness, we could talk about it as a sense of our own self-sufficiency, a sense that we are in need of nothing more. To desire something is to admit a lack or a need. Happiness would, by this account, point toward a kind of satisfaction that flows out of a well-lived life in which we take joy at what we have, in every sense of that word, whether it be possessions or friends or thoughts. 
and don't see how any addition would improve things. Happiness is a disposition or feeling that arises from the sense that morally, and maybe especially intellectually, but we'll say morally and intellectually speaking, we are reaching our highest potential, which is to say happiness comes to us from our actions or what we do every day. How or in what way could a machine produce this feeling in us? Wouldn't it have to be some sort of chemical-induced feeling in our brain that tricks us into thinking that we are better than we are? Or would a superior happiness machine be something mundane that we saw in chapter 7? Like a place to gather. Isn't the, front, isn't the front porch described in chapter 7 a kind of happiness machine? Everyone on the porch seemed to be happy after all. Earlier, Bradbury asked us, what is life? Or what does it mean to be alive? Now he raises a question that seems to follow from that. I am alive, but what am I supposed to do with my life? It seems like he is saying, pursue happiness. But just as the answer to what is life is somewhat elusive or difficult to state clearly, Bradbury may be indicating that happiness will prove to be an equally vexing or difficult thing to articulate or understand with great clarity. And yet we still have some sense of what life is and what happiness is, even if they're difficult to give a even if we have a hard time giving a precise account of them. In chapter nine, which again seems to be paired with eight, Aufman thinks to himself, quote, the shocks of life, he thought, biking along. What were they? Getting born, growing up, growing old, dying. Not much to boot not much to do but the first. But the other three, which is to say growing up, growing old, and dying, in this way, Aufman seems to lack a positive vision for happiness. He seeks to avoid painful shocks rather than pointing toward what is genuinely good to do or to possess. He seeks to avoid puberty, old age, and death, transition points for a human being. In some sense, then, he seeks immortality that is painless. But that doesn't yet answer the question. What, even if you were immortal, should you do with your life? At any rate, Alfin's family has acquired ice cream in this chapter, and all of them wait for him to get home before they eat it. For them, sharing a good thing, which is ice cream in this case, is more important than enjoying a good thing as an individual. It's better to enjoy them together. The goodness of them is intensified or increased through sharing it with others. Um, and we all have experiences like this where you, you see something, something beautiful or something good, and you think, man, I really wish that somebody could see this. I wish Mrs. MCC could see this or something like that. We really want to share these things that we see often. Um, but at any rate, it is at this very moment that Aufman asks his wife about whether he should invent a happiness machine. Her striking reply, two words, something's wrong? She assumes that her husband is happy. She thinks that she is happy. His family has waited for him to enjoy something together, and he now says that he should invent a happiness machine. Doesn't the desire to invent a happiness machine imply that one is not happy? Or at least it would imply this perhaps to his loving wife, and that's what she may be worried about. Perhaps Aufman meant that the machine would be for others, but that 
Uh, but we see that his wife interprets his wish as an expression of his own lack of happiness. Finally, we turn to chapter 10. Just as Douglas learned about being alive earlier, now his brother Tom learns something about fear of death. The chapter begins with Douglas on a walk home with Tom and their grandfather. Doug is met by friends who sweep him along, uh, sweep him away, quote, like a swarm of meteors, their gravity so huge that they pull Douglas away, end quote. The simile is striking insofar as it is naturalistic, which is to say Bradbury does not describe Doug choosing to leave. Rather, the gravity of the meteors, the friends, was so powerful that Doug could not have done otherwise. He was compelled by natural forces pulling him along beyond his control, just as other objects are compelled by gravity to fall. The simile is striking to me as at least something true to experience in a certain sense, um, in that we find ourselves, or sometimes we find ourselves talking to somebody, maybe we wanted to talk to them at first, but um, when we see somebody else who's more desirable to speak to, somebody that we respect more or admire more or just wish to learn from, um, and we don't want to talk to the person we're talking to any longer, it's as if we do feel this draw, as if we're pulled towards a more desirable person to speak with. Um, or we may fulfill that we're not fulfilling a certain duty, and maybe our sense of our duty draws us away from a conversation that we would like to have. This isn't to say that our capacity to choose is necessarily completely undermined by the simile, but it is interesting to think of the various options we have in life as possessing their own gravitational pull over our minds once we see them. Which isn't to say that the, the, the pull wouldn't change once we saw them more clearly or something like that. But at any rate, after Doug leaves to the ravine with his friends, Tom exclaims hopefully about the happiness machine coming to life. His grandfather replies, don't hold your breath. We see the hopefulness of youth having, hopefully, not yet undergone great disappointments and without having seen how difficult it is to fundamentally change a person's mind about something important. The young are filled with hope that they can transform in a big way the world, or at least their own life. The old, having felt bitter disappointment, don't expect some sort of newfangled invention can solve the fundamental human problems. The young yearn to experience a kind of happiness or wholeness or something new or unexpected that is better than anything they have seen before. The old have experienced a lot of things and didn't encounter an experience that lived up to their great hopes. But what if both are wrong? in that they expect too much out of happiness. Could happiness be something that is good, but not as overwhelmingly good as we may long for it to be when we are inexperienced or overly experienced, as the case may be? Um, however this may be, and I mean, this makes pretty big generalizations about the old and the young, and I'm sure exceptions exist on both sides. Um, but... As the chapter moves on, we see that Tom is home, but Doug isn't. He's still with his friends. Quote, it was really night on this small street, in a small town, in a big state, on a large continent, on a planet Earth, hurtling down the pit of space toward nowhere or somewhere. Bradbury emphasizes the way in which small worlds are nested within many larger ones. 
The last part of the quotation emphasizes that humans don't know if the Earth is hurtling somewhere. Does he mean with a purpose, with a goal of trying to get somewhere? Or nowhere, that is to say, with no purpose, moving randomly? Does Bradbury intentionally exaggerate how much we can know about the cosmos? If the Earth travels in predictable paths around the sun as far as the scientists tell us it does, is it right to say that we don't know where the Earth is hurtling? And by moving around the sun, it really isn't going somewhere, but it also isn't going nowhere. Is Bradbury trying to step away from a scientific account of objects? And is he instead trying to explain things from the perspective of how our mind perceives them without the aid of science? Again, moving back to that idea of how maybe a child would perceive the mind. Um, and you could say that without science, without our scientists telling us certain things, without them being able to observe things, um, in a way is not it is not possible for us to know if the planet is hurtling somewhere or nowhere. But at the same time, I think our common sense experience also does not tell us that the planet is hurtling maybe at all. So there's a weird way in which this account of things, assuming it's intentional, Bradbury sort of mixes together a common sense experience of the world that's received a little bit of science but hasn't been entirely tutored by it, such that, you know, you would have heard rumors, the earth is hurtling. And you think in your common sense experience, what? it doesn't seem like it's hurtling. It seems pretty stationary to me. It seems like the sun is moving around the earth, um, you know, in plain sight or something along those lines. So maybe there's something funny, and I'm just thinking about this now, that Bradbury is mixing together a child's common sense experience of the world as it receives impressions of this scientific world, but isn't yet sure what to do with them. Um, at any rate, Tom is able to secure his mother's sorry, permission to get ice cream on this dark night for the family. And when he returns, he and his mother eat their own portions of ice cream, and they put the rest away for Doug and his father for when they return home. Both are at separate places presently. Now certainly, there can be something special about eating ice cream with just one parent. Close connections with others are often built on the foundation of spending time with them individually or one-on-one. -on -one. Which is to say, it isn't obvious that Bradbury asks us to judge Douglas's family or Tom's family negatively, but by setting side-by-side -side two different ice cream episodes between two chapters, isn't he asking us to compare them? And whenever we compare two things, don't we always, or at least usually, see one thing as worse than the other? or better than the other, even if there are some trade-offs that we're also able to see. It is even quite possible that Bradbury pushes us to prefer the Tom and Mom ice cream scene insofar as he quietly pointed toward Alfman's potential unhappiness, or at least, or his wife's unhappiness, or her interpretation of Alfman's happiness at the conclusion of the previous chapter. So maybe Tom and Mom are happier in this moment. But... For the first time, worry and doubt intrude into the story. It is 9.30 p.m. and Doug still isn't home. Mother calls out and hears nothing. So she asks Tom to take a short walk with her. Quote, there was such a complete lack of life, light, and activity. End quote. This is the description as they walk outside. And this darkness stirs their imagination. Quote, the lonely ones around again, killing people. No one's safe anymore, end quote. 
We are meant initially to think of the lonely one as a nickname for some sort of murderer. However, farther down the page, we learn that the lonely one is death itself. Um, and we learn as well that Doug and Tom's family suffered a terrible fate of losing a seven-year-old girl to death. Um, that She had died um, outside of the book or before the book began. Now, since the mother has faced death, she takes seriously the possibility that something terrible could befall one of her sons. As Tom and his mother go on a walk to find Doug, Tom learns for himself that adults are more vulnerable than they appear as his mother's hand trembles when she gets to the ravine, the place which had earlier in the story been said to be the place where civilization and the wild meet. This moment echoes Doug's claim from chapter 6 that dad and grandpa don't know everything. But it may be that Tom's discovery here in chapter 10 is even more terrifying than Doug's was. Not only do adults not know everything, but they might also prove to be unable to act with sufficient skill to protect children from pain or even death. It is perhaps this insight which generates such great fear in Tom. Not just that it is dark, but that the person which he assumed would be able to shield him from evil in the world might be unable to. Quote, he was instantly cold as a wind out of December gone. End quote. That describes Tom. Just as Dandelion One captures the summer, so does fear or awareness of vulner vulnerability and therefore potentially death feel like the winter. And what is more, this fear points to a feeling of fundamental loneliness. To die is to die one's own death and not any other. It is to lose our access to the world and to ourselves. Now, these dark thoughts occur, but ultimately Doug comes out of the ravine with his friends and everything's fine and they walk back. And the mother threatens to whoop uh, Doug when they get home. And so ends chapter 10. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this commentary on the first 10 chapters of Bradbury's Dandelion Wine. It's a, it's a lovely and beautiful book to me, and I hope to uh, speak with you again about it soon. Uh, Brian Wilson out.